takes a lifetime to find a life like the life you had in mind. It takes a lifetime to find a life like the life you had in mind. It takes a lifetime to find a life like the life you had in mind. Now you're mine. Hello and welcome to episode 1953 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm excited because we've got a new entry in the catalog of ways in which baseball is different from all or most other sports. Oh. This one comes to us courtesy of the late Roger Angel. And also from listener Jimmy and Patreon supporter Jimmy, who brought this to our attention. This is from an Angel essay from 1976 called On the Ball, where he wrote about the baseball. And Jimmy writes, a possible additional way in which baseball is unique. In the closing paragraphs of On the Ball, Roger Angel notes that baseball is the only team sport in which the scoring is not done with the ball. Oh. Yeah. In hockey, which of course doesn't quite have a ball, but we'll put that aside. In hockey, football, soccer, basketball, or lacrosse, the ball or its equivalent actually scores or is responsible for the points that determine the winner. In baseball, the score is determined by the runner, while the ball is a long way off doing something quite different. While he does employ the qualifier team sport, Jimmy notes, it's still not common among scoring sports, period. I figure any list is bettered by an addition from Roger Angel. I would agree. He knew that this was going to be catnip for us, that we were going to bite on this bait because it's Angel, but also it's a good point. So I don't know. I'm constantly having to reshuffle my Mount Rushmore, my top five (laughs) ways in which uh, baseball is unique or at least weird compared to other sports. But this is a a good one. I don't know if this quite cracks the top, but the fact that the ball passing something or going into a net or a hoop or whatever, crossing a line. That is not how the actual scoring happens. Obviously, like the ball is involved. You got to hit the ball so you can run around the bases. But ultimately, it's the runner stepping on home plate that leads to a run directly. So that is weird. Whenever we mention one of these things, we get emails. We welcome emails from people who say, oh, it's not so different from this sport or, or that sport. So maybe it's not unique, but it certainly is unusual. Yeah. And like there are plenty of examples in like racing based sports mm. yeah. where like the person crossing the finish line is what it constitutes right. a win. But I'm trying to think if I'm going to be able to express this clearly. Like if you're a swimmer, Ben, imagine mm-hmm. you're a swimmer I and am. you're. I can swim. Yeah. But like imagine you're like a competitive <laughs> not swimmer. Competitively. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> although, you know, Ben. Maybe swimming is a thing you should explore as a a sport option. Yeah, yeah. You're in the market. It's true. Yeah, Yeah. I I swim recreationally. Yeah, yeah. you could could Mm -hmm. do some recreational swimming. But so anyway, you know, like imagine you're a competitive swimmer. You getting to the wall and touching the wall, like that constitutes winning, but you don't have an implement, right? And even in sports like um, like cycling, you know, if you're, congratulations, you're now a competitive cycler also, <laughs> you're using an implement to participate in the race, but it's it's conveying you to the finish line, right? Right. As opposed to like baseball, where you are using an implement to 
hit a ball and then have a person score. So there's like a degree of separation removed there. I don't know if I'm articulating what I view to be a clear distinction between those things yeah. clearly to everyone else. But so yeah, it is a it is a weird bit of little business there, you know, because mm-hmm. normally it's either the thing or the person. And baseball is like a, a weird twisty melange of those, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm. Yeah. Update, by the way, on will Ben play a sport and what sport will it oh. be? There's been a, a vacant lot, sort of, not a lot, it, it's like a building, but there's been a, a vacant storefront, I guess you would say, on the corner of my block for years now, just a big space. And occasionally there will be some temporary art installation or something will move in there for a little while, but nothing ever sticks. But my wife and I just noticed this week that it's about to be a pickleball place. Oh, just, boy. Yeah, right on the corner. And this was a a popular recommendation that I should take up pickleball. I played a little in school. So did Jesse. And and maybe we'll take this up. I mean, the big impediment to my doing something has been like having to go somewhere. (laughs) So if it's just on the corner and it also seems to be connected to the gym I belong to in some way, like it's branded the same way. So I have to ask, like, is this going to be part of the membership or do I have to pay extra or what? But if I only have to walk like half a block, if there's not intense competition for space, then I might be interested in this. This is a a major development in my pursuit of playing a sport (laughs) sort of competitively, Ah. but not too competitively. Well, again, I want to voice the same set of pickleball-based concerns that I had, which is that I think you are right that there is more casual pickleball to be had, but I I am often struck by the intensity with which people talk about pickleball these days. So, you know, just be just be careful, Ben, is all yeah. I'm saying. Just be mindful that you don't get in over your head because it seems like people are getting in over their heads with pickleball. Of all, yeah. th- of all things, you know, pickleball. <laughs> you know, who knew? I feel very unoriginal. Like if this is the thing that I, I suddenly start doing when everyone else in the world suddenly started doing it, it's, it's kind of like, could I have not been more creative than that? Yeah, but, but like, <laughs> you know, you're it's you're trying to do something that has some amount of like camaraderie. And so it's hard to be, it's hard to satisfy that urge and be truly original like by Mm -hmm. definition you need a bunch of other folks to have been like yeah pickleball let's go so i think it's fine yeah okay well thank you anyway exciting developments i mean it's moving in like right next door what can i do some people get hurt badly when they play pickleball yeah i know or anything well yeah but (laughs) we're gonna talk to dan simborski of fan graphs a little later in the show and he's gonna join us to talk about some of the areas that still need work on various major league rosters because free agency is uh, just about petered out now it's kind of on its last gasps all of the the major free agents have signed and so we'll go to dan the proprietor of the zips projection system to kind of go team by team and and look at some contenders or hopeful aspiring contenders and some areas where they might still need to shore up certain parts of their roster and we'll also get into shohei otani and the free agent market in general and also AI and chatbots, etc. So we'll bring on Dan shortly. I guess there have been only a, a couple transactions of note since we last spoke. One involves your Mariners, who signed AJ Pollock, right? Yeah. So uh, AJ Pollock, he had, I think it was a $13 million player option with the White Sox, which he declined. Yeah. And he, he got a $5 million buyout for that. And now he got 
a one-year, what is it, 7, 7 million? 7 million, yeah. Yeah, so he ended up getting 12 instead of the 13 that he could have gotten with the White Sox. For all I know, he didn't really want to stay with the White Sox. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he's happy with how that worked out, or maybe he thought he would have a, a better market than he ended up having. Yeah. But this isn't maybe the major marquee Mariners edition that some Mariners fans were hoping for, but yeah. it is a free agent signing. Yeah. I mean, that is, listen, Ben, I'm here to say that is technically true. You know, mm-hmm. I spot uh, no lies detected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just find myself like pretty underwhelmed by Seattle's offseason generally. And I know that that statement gets some people's, uh, raises their hackles, gets their back up a bit. But I think that this team is fun and exciting. And I know that we will talk about them at some point in our conversation with Dan, spoiler, we've already had our conversation with Dan, so I know what Dan has to say about it, but it felt as if the Mariners had sort of telegraphed that they had one payroll in mind, and then they have not done that payroll. And I don't know if it's just because, you know, I have some amount of sympathy for Jerry because I am also a talker by nature. And as I've mentioned on this podcast several times, like once we're done potting, I don't remember what I've said. Like I kind of do. I have like a vague idea of it, but I get a pretty meaningful brain wipe uh, at the end of our recording session such that I worry very much that I said something like remarkably stupid. And so I have sympathy for the kind of person who talks a lot in part because it is his job to talk to the media and then maybe doesn't always remember the stuff that he says and so people will be like, but you said this and you didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also know that their budget is being set by ownership and not by DePoto. I know that Ryan Divish has done some reporting on that, that they didn't seem to have much clearance to add payroll. And I know that some of our listeners will be like, but hey, Meg, they extended Julio and you know they traded for and then, and then extended Luis Castillo. And to that I say, yes, that's nice, but I wanted them to take an improv yes and approach to the offseason so that they could compete more fully with the Astros. And now I worry that they're going to spend much of the 2023 season fending off the Rangers. And Mm -hmm. that feels, you know, that feels bad, Ben. It feels, Mm -hmm. doesn't feel dignified. (laughs) But here we are. So uh, AJ Pollock is a, you know, he's a big league outfielder. He hit poorly last year but has hit better in the somewhat recent past. So I don't know. We'll we'll kind of see. I don't know if you were to tell me you have the option to add A.J. Pollock or to retain Jesse Winkler. I might have thought, well, mm-hmm. you know, like, well, is that? <laughs> yeah. It feels like a lateral. It feels like a lateral move. Now, Winker and Abraham Toro did not the Mariners call him long, and that mm-hmm. feels like a, a an upgrade. But they still had they still had work to do, and I I, I worry that we will go into spring training and grade them as having a, an incomplete assignment. You know, so yeah. that's kind of how I feel about the Mariners. But it could be fine. Their pitching's mm-hmm. really good. Feel yep. really good about their pitching. Feel feel good about Julio. I do think that Colton Wong is an upgrade. I am pleased and hope that a, a whole a healthy season from Ty France will reveal him to be uh, a lot like the hitter he was at the beginning of the season rather than the one who came back from injury. They got the big dumper, you know. <laughs> Tay <course>. Oscar <laughs> is a good hitter. He's not much to write home about from a fielding perspective, but he's there. But, you know, you're like looking at this lineup and you're like, it's better, but it's still going to feature like Jared Kelnick. Mm-hmm. So hope that, uh, hope that bullpen continues to be good. I guess that bullpen now f- potentially features Justin Topa. 
Yeah. Which is a fun name to say, even if yeah, I find him kind of underwhelming as a pitcher. So, you know, like here we are. We're we're marinersing. We don't know what that <laughs> means yet. We haven't we haven't gotten to know the post uh postseason mariners yet. Some of them are the same, but some of them are different. I don't know. My my big hope, Ben, candidly for Seattle is that Casey Sadler ends up playing a big role and that, that isn't sad. <laughs> yeah. Pollock, uh, he hit lefties well at least last year. So there's that. There's that. You know, yeah. they got they got that. They also got Trevor Gutt. So mm-hmm. All right. <sighs> it's just like have bigger, you know, like I want us to aspire to bigger things. You mm-hmm. know, and the, the front office is gonna do what it does and they're gonna do largely what ownership allows them to do. But like, you know, amongst the fans, like Mariners fans, let's come together and ask for more. Let's strive. You know, we should we should strive. So, The other move of some note involved the other team that broke an extended playoff drought last year, the Phillies. Phillies. acquired Gregory Soto from yeah, the Tigers. They did. So this was a five-player deal where the Phillies got Detroit's closer and all-star. <laughs> Tigers adjusted all-star. Tigers had to have an all-star. Gregory Soto was sometimes that guy. Yeah. They got Gregory Soto and Cody Clemens, yep. and they gave up. Three players, Nick Maton, Car Shield sponsor Matt Veerling, and catcher Donnie Sands. So uh, I saw mixed reviews and, yeah. and conflicting opinions on this trade. Uh, I guess what you can say is that the Phillies project to have a good bullpen. I think yeah. uh, they're fourth now in projected bullpen war. We're going to talk to Dan about how reliable that is. But you have Atlanta at the top, and then you have Cleveland, and then you have the Mets, and then you have the Phillies. Yeah. And Boy, I mean, I guess Soto, you could probably say, is effectively wild, right? He's yeah. certainly wild. And he is. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know how, uh, at times, not so effectively. At but, times, uh, overall, yeah. fairly effective. Maybe not yeah. as, as much as you would hope, but there's a lot of velocity. In that bullpen, yeah. they have the the two hardest throwing lefties, I guess, yep. period now, and another really hard thrower in Sir Anthony Dominguez, and then they added Kimbrel to that mix, yeah. so it's it's a very volatile group. <laughs> like on some days, it, it will probably look completely lights out, and other days, it might look like no one can find the strike zone. But yeah. at least there's depth, there's redundancy there. So if if one of those guys is out of whack at any given time, you have a few potential late inning options there so it's just it's very Phillies I guess like there's gonna be a lot of chaos to this mix and I don't know I mean they gave up some young-ish I mean not really young but mid-20s guys that people were thinking they might get more out of at some point and Veerling, I, I know, you know, he plays multiple positions and he, uh, I guess, underperformed his expected stats last year and everything. But it's, it's Dave Dabrowski, you know, he he's uh, perennially not the strongest bullpens, historically speaking. So he's, yeah. he's trying to change that, just trying to throw another hard throwing late inning reliever at the problem. Yep. I think that, um, you know, one might argue that perhaps they sold a little low. On Beerling. One could mm-hmm. argue that, that one mm-hmm. that they did that. My biggest takeaway from this trade is that have you noticed Donny Sands' roster photo from last year? No. Okay, so not the one that if you like search Donny Sands and then you click into his MILB page, but like just Google Google for me real quick. Google for <laughs> me Donny Sands. 
Okay. <laughs> Are we talking about the first one here? Yeah. Do you see the one yeah. with him in a Phillies uniform and the face yeah, he's making? Yeah, that's quite an expression. Yeah. It, I'm here to submit that it is a tragedy this man is no longer a Philly because that guy <laughs> looks like he is about to like get in a fight in a way that feels feels good for Philly. Yeah. It feels like if you can have onomatopoeia for a face in a place, that's... <laughs> or that's not what I mean. Not onomatopoeia. Yeah, yeah, that's what do I mean? Yeah, he has he has face onomatopoeia for Philly. It's tragedy. I mean, like I don't. I just think that there's a missed opportunity that has been had here. But yeah, I think like it's it's fine. It's interesting to take like a volume approach to volatility, which feels like what Philly has done here. But I kind of like it. Like the bet seems to be well, like a couple of these guys are probably going to be healthy and good at the same time. So let's see what mm-hmm. we got from them. You know, let's see yeah. it's fine. Mm-hmm. All right, so I guess uh, just a few updates with uh, players being reinstated or people mm. being reinstated or not mm. reinstated or mm. cut loose or mm. welcomed back. So mm. first of all, I-, I guess we could follow up just briefly maybe on Trevor Bauer. I, I yeah. mentioned at the end of last episode because the news broke shortly before I posted that one. So Yeah, they sure did. They sure did wait, didn't they? They really did. Yeah. And ultimately, the Dodgers uh, did the thing that yep. I think they should have done, which is designate Trevor Bauer for assignment. Yeah. They took it up to right before the deadline, apparently, the day of the deadline. And there's been sub- subsequent reporting, conflicting statements, right? Yeah. Bauer, of course, uh, claimed that Dodgers executives had told him they wanted him back. Dodgers executives, at least anonymously, have vehemently denied that. But it does seem that there was some sort of meeting the day prior that took place between the Dodgers and Bauer. And and whether this was just a formality or whether they were actually evaluating Bauer and considering, contemplating bringing him back, depending on what he said, it's unclear. But it sounds like Ken Rosenthal reported that uh, the Dodgers were worried about losing some competitive advantage if they if they did cut Bauer loose and someone else picked him up a, r- a rival and presumably they were perhaps trying to trade him possibly it whatever the truth was like it doesn't send the strongest message you know if if the message was uh, we're not going to welcome someone who has had this kind of behavior and we're not going to tolerate that i think they fell short of that by yeah taking the maximum amount of time that they had and seemingly exploring their options or at least considering bringing him back or trying to get something from him. So I don't know that they covered themselves in in glory with the way they handled it, but it had the outcome that I think was the one that that had to happen. Yeah, you know, I guess that I I shouldn't be totally surprised i mean i think that the maybe more important to me at this juncture than the precise tiktok of what they consider doing but didn't ultimately do and you know i i think i agree with you that it's probably the correct thing to do to cast a skeptical eye trevor bowers way about how you know enthusiastic they were at the idea of bringing him back because of course he's gonna say that but i think while it wouldn't be I don't think it would be necessarily that reasonable to like look at the Dodgers and be like, how did you not anticipate this like horrifying assault? There were character red flags associated with this person and they were public. And this isn't going to be the last time that Los Angeles has to navigate 
a situation where there's a free agent who, in terms of the contributions on the field, they're enthusiastic about, but in terms of the the person and what that person brings to the character of their organization, they might find him wanting. And so I think that just as important or perhaps more important than being like, well, what did you guys really consider doing is what did you learn from this? You know, what, if any, effect is this experience going to have on how you think about doing sort of background and due diligence on a free agent and what are the lines that you think are important to maintain in terms of your fans and the people who work in your organization either being able to enjoy what your team does as an entertainment product or you know what they might expect of a person who's a coworker. So I think there are still unanswered questions there and they're important ones for Los Angeles to really contemplate. I I guess realistically I don't know how public that contemplation might end up being but i i do think that it would be good for their fans to be able to hear from that front office and have them you know if not you know spend time being contrite spend time being self-reflective and tell us about you know what they learned and what they might do differently in the future because you know they haven't been kind of covered in glory when it comes to trevor bauer from the beginning because they chose to sign a guy who i think it was clear to everyone was a malcontent and kind of an asshole sorry for the swear so i think there there is work to do on a going forward basis that goes far beyond trevor bauer so that's what i have to say about that yeah even putting aside the decision to to sign him before all the subsequent revelations just like the time it took to decide to cut ties with him at this point that was the part that perplexed me just because there was a several month period of knowing that perhaps his suspension might be reduced and that he might be reinstated and that you might have to make a decision at that point. They didn't know exactly when that was coming, but they knew there was a chance that it could come. So there was ample time to talk about what they would do or could do if that happened. And then just two weeks went by after the decision came down. And there was reporting during that time that, oh, yeah, they're they're going to get rid of him and there are players who aren't supportive of him in the clubhouse and everything. But it still took until the very last second for them to make that decision. Maybe part of it was just like, let's bury it Friday news dump. But there were multiple Fridays before that. So I don't know. It's just it's odd that that they dragged it out quite as long as they did at the very end. But it's done. And it doesn't seem like there's a lot of interest from other teams. It would sort of surprise me if another team did pick him up even at the league minimum, but we will see once he uh, is officially done and and clears waivers and is a free agent again. So then we'll see if he ends up in Korea or Mexico or NPB or who knows where, perhaps nowhere. We're on YouTube for us to all deal with in that capacity. Yeah, there's that. So another reinstatement is uh, John Coppolella. So MLB yeah, has how uh, about that? <laughs> it's, has lifted the ban on former Braves general manager John Coppolella. It was a lifetime ban. It turned out to be, I guess, about a five-year ban instead of lifetime. But he has been banned. He's been on the ineligible list after the the sanctions that the Braves got that he got for violating rules uh, regarding international free agency and and the amateur draft. And all of the ways that the Braves crossed the line there and kind of cooked the books. And, of course, uh, they had penalties, other penalties. They had 
players lost, etc. Not that it has hurt them (laughs) competitively, particularly. They've been quite competitive and won a World Series, etc. But Capoeira was banned. And I think I don't really have a a sense of, you know, I don't know exactly what went on or what the the various uh, responsibilities were. I think people were surprised that, that maybe other members of that front office didn't get a similar penalty, but he's back. It sounds like, uh, you know, whatever whatever contriteness uh, Trevor Bauer obviously did not exhibit, Coppola has, right? You weren't going to get that out of Bauer, but Coppola has, you know, taken responsibility and said he regrets what he did, etc. I don't know whether that's sufficient or not, but it's a step that obviously Bauer was not willing to do and, and yeah. whether the Dodgers were hoping that they would get that out of him however sort of short-sighted or short-lived that would have been he did not give them that and Coppola did and the statement said that uh, given the more than five years he spent on the ineligible list the contrition he expressed and the other steps he took in response to this matter whatever the steps were and he put out a, a statement too thanking various people for making this happen so he's back again I don't know that that he will be back in a front office, but he he can be now if someone were to want to hire him. Yeah, I do find it like kind of striking. I think both in his initial apology and then in the statement that he gave to the athletic after his reinstatement from the ineligible list, that like the players involved in this are strangely absent from both of those apologies in a way that I find really Mm. weird. Mm. You know, he emphasizes that like his primary apology is to his friends and family. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, but (laughs) Mm -hmm. so I don't know, like, I don't know why, I don't know why we needed this. (laughs) Like I, I do think I understand that when it comes to employment matters like this, and he's not an employee of, of the league or one of its teams, obviously, but like when it comes to that kind of stuff, like I do think that having some amount of privacy is reasonable, but also if there are particular things that he did that made the league go from saying this guy should never have a place in baseball again to he is eligible to be employed, even if he isn't currently, like I do think laying that stuff out and having people understand what about it convince them is useful if for no other reason than people might assume kind of fairly that like there isn't a good reason absent that so it's weird i don't know man like we don't need do we need copy do we need copy back yeah i don't know i mean i'm sure a lot of teams were were doing suspect things and maybe still are right so i I know that there were people who looked at that and thought like this guy's getting banned forever and what about this team or that team you know it became some kind of what about ism that was going on there and i guess they sort of made him and, and them an example and maybe they they did it most egregiously so i don't really have a, a handle myself on just like how severe what they right. were doing was compared to what other teams were doing perhaps still are doing in some cases i don't have that strong an opinion on this one way or another. I mean, it's it's an executive, and so it it it's a lot less visible either way. So I'm not like finally free copy, but right, <laughs> I'm, not, yeah. I'm not also like I don't know. Like, uh, did he deserve to be banned forever? I mean, I didn't like object to that. It's it's hard to know because it's all sort of uh, behind the scenes a little bit, and and I don't know whether it was like some of it was like obstructing investigations or or not, or whether that played 
played some part well, in that. Well, that was the, the scuttlebutt yeah. at the right. time, right? That part of what inspired the league to come down quite so hard on him in particular was that yeah. he, he didn't cooperate in the way that they wanted him to with the investigation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if that's the case, then I don't know what changed since then. But maybe he started to cooperate after the fact. Who knows? Anyway. That happened. It yeah. Was, was notable news. Yeah, I I think the point about like we have this this I think understandable tendency to try to to fit these sorts of things within a broader framework of sanction and punishment, and I I get that instinct, and I think it's a reasonable one because we want to try to use it to gauge the seriousness of the underlying conduct in a way that can be difficult when we don't have access to the full investigative report. So I don't know relative to what else has gone on in that space, which is full of like really yucky stuff affecting very young players, where this stacks up relative to the other violations of other teams or other team personnel. And I'm not saying that you're saying like, well, free copy because you just said you're not saying that. But, you know, it is like, Clearly bad stuff went on here. So like, I think there being serious punishment involved is appropriate, particularly given the ages of some of the players involved. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, I think one of the, one of the frustrating things about any league investigation is that we are always, we are very often left wanting more information so that we can sort of take a step back and assess where where the sport sits in relation to issues like this that are so important and are so important in ways that don't really have anything to do with baseball. And all of that said, like, seems like this was pretty bad. So having some Mm -hmm. severe sanctions was appropriate. I don't know, man. Yeah, there was one other news story related to someone being banned or unbanned from something. And and that is uh, maybe the best pitcher in the KBO who's... uh, An Woo Jin of the Kiwum Heroes. He had the lowest ERA in KBO. He led all pitchers with the the strikeouts. He was like one shy of the single season record. And he has been disqualified from the WBC team or, or not invited to be on the WBC team because of past bullying. So this has been a a big thing in KBO. I don't know if this was a storyline on Stove League, the show that we watched and recapped. Everything else was a storyline on that show. But it's interesting because Anwu Jin, he's, uh, I think he's 23 and he throws very hard, especially for that league. He averages like 95 and can go much higher than that. And he would be one of the best MLB prospects uh, eventually when he became available, but he has suffered all kinds of consequences for bullying that came to light. So he's been banned from some like Olympics competition in the past and and now was left off the 30-man roster for the Korean WBC team. And, and he was even like disqualified from ERA and, and strikeout titles and, and awards and that sort of thing. It, it's become kind of a big thing in the KPO, as I understand it, and not even just in baseball, but other Korean sports too, like this kind of hazing or, or even more than that, that that went on. And so this uh, was reported high school teammates of his, I think, that he physically 
bullied. And so this has kind of uh, followed him around this this label and, and punishments for it. So it's it's interesting. There's been pretty severe consequences for that. And yeah. there have been other KBO players who have had similar allegations or, or revelations come out. And uh, it's kind of been a problem there in the past. So they have uh, taken it seriously now. Yeah. So that's, that's really, you know, hamstringing yourself in international competition that I'm sure means a lot to yeah. that country and its people and its baseball fans. The guy who would probably be the ace on that team not invited to to play because of that. So obviously different in every way, but also came to mind while we were talking about uh, yeah. these other reports about players being reinstated or shunned or people being welcomed back. It's uh, interesting to see what consequences stick and which don't. Yeah. And, you know, like it's sometimes doing the right thing is inconvenient. So mm -hmm. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to mention, just uh, Related to the Braves, uh, Bob Nightingale wrote a column, I know, but he wrote a column for USA Today, and it was ostensibly about Carlos Correa and the Mets saga with him and how all this stuff has come out about Correa, and then he used that as a way to point out that nothing ever comes out about the Braves, right? The current Braves front office and the yeah. way that they operate. And he wrote that uh, <laughs> he said in Atlanta, winners of five consecutive Annalise titles and a 2021 World Series ring. There are no leaks, barely any rumors. They are the KGB of baseball. If they are close to making a trade, it's radio silence until players are informed. If they sign a player, you'll read the details when they reveal it on their official website. They're not intentionally trying to ruin the fun for reporters, but they've got a business to run games to win and aren't concerned one bit about their name barely being mentioned during the winter. And it runs through the history of some of their surprise moves just being announced when they were done. Most recently, Sean Murphy and that trade and then extension. And then there's a quote from Braves GM Alex Anthopoulos. I know it can be frustrating for fans. They want to know who we're talking to, who we're trying to get. But in today's day and age, you have leaks. And when you have distractions and interference, it makes it more complicated. If things get out and they're not finalized, then you're bombarded with text messages, calls, and emails. I just don't see any upside. It just doesn't help anybody. There's no benefit. It's not conducive to doing your job. It just makes it so much easier to work when there are no leaks and having all those distractions. And he went on to say we've had free agent agreements or trades that hit a snag from a medical standpoint where things were restructured or fell apart, but nobody knew any of it. Players went on to sign with other teams or trades went on with other trade partners. The team wasn't hurt by it. The players weren't hurt by it. Things can happen. I'm a huge sports fan myself. I'm a big Atlanta Hawks and Falcons fan. I love reading all the rumors and gossip. As a kid growing up in Montreal, I'd go to the Corner Star on Sunday and get Peter Gammons' notes column in the Boston Globe. I loved it. As a sports fan, it's great. It just doesn't help the Braves. So it is uh, kind of interesting. I mean, first of all, to think about how they manage this, right? Like, <laughs> is it not actually like the KGV, hopefully, where people are worried about like being sent to the gulag or something if they speak. But I wonder how you do that. Like, how do you get all yeah. your front office folks from buying in to like loose lips sink ships and, and actually keeping quiet? And I wonder what other competitive advantages there are, because sometimes it doesn't really matter if someone leaks something and something is reported before the team reports it. I mean, that's kind of typical. It can be messy sometimes, certainly with the Korea saga and the Giants and the way that worked out. I mean, 
I don't know whether they would prefer that no one knew they had ever been interested or had a deal with him or whether it's better to know that at least they wanted one now that we know it's not just them raising flags on the physical. But sometimes it can be an issue if something leaks like before a player is informed of it and and then it can be emotional and you can feel betrayed or or blindsided or something. And I don't know, I guess there are probably other competitive advantages of of some sort, not always, but is this indicative of like that front office kind of running a tight ship and signing everyone to extensions? Is that related to the fact that they never talk about anything or does it go hand in hand or is it unrelated? I don't know, but I'm, I'm curious about how they manage it, I guess, when it seems like no one else can. Yeah, I would imagine that like they have to be pretty... I don't know. On the one hand, you'd say they have to be pretty totalitarian among their own staff because you'd think that somebody would call somebody. But the fact that it doesn't even really leak on the agent side is the part that I find the most surprising, right? Because, you know, you could say we're we're taking a super hard line. If we figure out who leaked, you're fired and do it. And then people will be like, we're not going to leak. And I'm not saying like that would be a, you know, proportional response to uh, leaking trade stuff. But, you know, you could imagine that. But it's surprising that they're able to kind of keep the level of quiet they are on the agent side, if nothing else. But then again, like since so many of these ones that they end up announcing are like, we've signed this guy to a multi-year extension. Maybe the agents are like, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be quiet because, mm-hmm. you know, Sean Murphy just got big money or something. So mm-hmm. even if it's slightly below market money. So, you know, there might be something there. But I like from a player perspective, I do like that we don't get leaks out of that front office like we all remember Wilmer Flores you know it sucks Mm -hmm. when you think you're being traded and then you you have a big emotional reaction to that potentially and you're thinking about like where am I gonna live and to inflict that kind of disorientation or potential disorientation and emotional response on someone and then be like never mind they didn't call us back right (laughs) it's like that kind of sucks (laughs) yeah players they know what they're getting into right but still like even if they understand that it's just part of the business and part of this profession i'm sure there's still some lingering hurt feelings or bitterness you know whether something happens or not so if you can minimize that and just make everyone feel really wanted is that gonna help you sign them to an extension because they don't know that at some point you tried to trade them i don't know but i guess it can't hurt but yeah you're right nightingale leads this column by by talking about how leaky agents are yeah and how it's common practice for agents to reveal where their client is headed and what he'll earn before he takes a physical let alone the deal becomes official You see it all the time with agents revealing player signings, agents rushing to inform reporters that their client has just been traded, and agents giving out access to the union website for contract details, hundreds of minor league signings the clubs have yet to announce, and arbitration case settlements. Of course, I'm sure a lot of them are leaking to Bob Nightingale himself, (laughs) but but he doesn't explain how it is that if agents are, are often the source, how Atlanta manages to clamp down on that avenue too so i don't know whether it's like agents know that it's such a priority for atlanta that they're worried that they'll be blackballed or something or that the braves won't deal with them if if they leak and so they're kind of cowed into quiet too i don't know but that's uh it's fascinating yeah they are they are a chatty bunch ben they are <laughs> you know agents and scouts chatty yeah oh yeah 
All right. Well, we can end with a pass blast before we bring Dan on. So this is episode 1953, and this pass blast consequently comes from 1953 and from Jacob Pomeranke, Sabres Director of Editorial Content and Chair of the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee. And Jacob writes, 1953, Otto Graham and Tommy Pham. You'll be forgiven for not remembering when Mickey Mantle's tenure as commissioner came under fire or when Duke Snyder finally dethroned Branch Rickey as champion of the Dodgers Fantasy Football League. That only happened in Ford Frick's imagination back in 1953. Baseball's commissioner surprised a lot of people before opening day in 1953 when he issued a sternly worded edict warning players from getting involved in high-stakes wagers with each other off the field. Fantasy football wasn't the player's game of choice back then, and the closest comparison to Tommy Pham in those days was hot-headed Billy Martin. Syndicated columnist Robert Ruark was one of several writers who mocked Frick's warning to the players in this piece from May 14, 1953. Quote, I reckon the nation is safe for another year since friend Ford Frick, the Galahad of baseball, has issued a stern injunction against the game of hearts at high fee. And he has warned in a voice of doom that gambling is wicked for ballplayers. Commissioner Frick has declared himself against games of chance for high stakes and especially against consorting with shabby characters such as bookies. The deplorable state of Monte Carlo daring do, which aroused Mr. Frick's official concern, comes as a result of pregnant rumor that the young farmhands are outdistancing themselves in clubhouse games of Parcheesi or whatever they play these days. But if I am Mr. Frick, I will not worry too much about excessive gambling among his flock, because unless baseball players have changed since my day, they experience acute agony at parting with a dime. It used to be a nickel, but now inflation's here. Jacob concludes, Frick didn't call out any specific incidents or name any players who were throwing too much money around the pool rooms or poker tables, so his warning came and went without too much fuss in 1953. Who knows what he would have thought about today's big money clubhouse bets between players, some of which spill over into public knowledge, at least when Tommy Pham gets involved. We do not know if Billy Martin ever took a swing at an opposing player for drafting 49ers quarterback Y.A. Tittle over the Browns' Otto Graham with the number one pick. However, we do know Martin once punched out a marshmallow salesman and lost his job as the Yankees' manager. That story was not a figment of anyone's imagination. So I guess uh, this is another, the more things change, the more they stay the same, except these days uh, everyone is gambling and betting and sometimes hawking things and serving as uh, spokespeople. And that is mostly allowed to this point. And the commissioner uh, looks the other way or actually looks right at it and says more. So (laughs) I guess things actually have changed in this case. This is uh, the same in the sense that players and people in general want to wager and want to bet on stuff. But the relationship to it has changed, at least in an official capacity. Did I see that Pete Rose opened sports betting in Ohio? Yes, he placed the the first legal uh, bet. He bet yeah. on the Reds to win the World Series. Ha ha. <laughs> All right, we will be right back with Dan Simporski.
All right, we are back, and we are joined now by Dan Saborski, senior writer for Fangraphs, creator of the Zips projection system, coiner of the term zombie runner, which I think will be his greatest legacy. Certainly it is on this show, but for this segment, we'll be talking a lot about Zips. Dan, welcome back. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, I have mixed feelings about zombie runner because I've kind of coined something for something I hate uh, and wish (laughs) to not be a thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, still, it's better to have a term for it that is uh, not misleading, I think, and is not already a term for something else that is completely different. So if we have to have it, then I'm glad that we have something appropriate to call it and we have you to thank for that. So sorry to distract you from uh, your creating Gronks with AI on Twitter, <laughs> which is immensely disturbing. <laughs> um, but we are actually going to talk about baseball instead of AI Gronk, I guess. <gasps> so we figured that the offseason is obviously not over. We've got plenty more offseason to go, but most of the offseason transaction activity has been completed to the point that your colleague Ben Clemens is uh, running retrospectives on the <laughs> top 50 free agents because almost all of them have signed. There aren't a lot of impact players left, which doesn't mean that we could not see some signings. And of course, there's Carlos Correa out there still, which I guess is one exception. But because we can almost kind of close the book on free agency, we figured we would sort of survey the league with you and look at some weak points that there's still time to address in theory, but particularly on contending teams, some positions that are shaping up to not be very productive and where teams might still want to try to tinker before opening day if possible. So we haven't seen the numbers. You're looking at the numbers, the Zips gold mine. So I guess we will kind of go where you want to go, but you're in the middle of your <laughs> Zips team by team projections so you've kind of gotten a handle on teams and positions and your Shohei Otani projection is out there and it is spectacular and robust and uh, were you expecting differently though no I wasn't I think it'd be a big story if it says Zips projects Otani to have (laughs) 1.4 war (laughs) yeah well I've seen some people because they don't combine the projections they'll show like the top projections and and there won't be Otani on the list because they will not have added up his projections as a pitcher and as a DH and if you do that then you have him at eight war, which is uh, how far above the next best player is he at this point? Because that's that's like Trout territory. Have you had another player other than Trout in that rarefied air? Well, I don't even have Trout in that rarefied air right now. No, so you be- used to. Yeah, I may mean, used to. But, you know, Zips, Zips doesn't know everything about a player's playing time for obvious reasons because it's a computer and I'm not putting my thumb on the scale. But it is aware, generally speaking, of Trout's age, the time he's missed to injuries. So Trout doesn't really get Trout projections anymore. But mm-hmm. Otani does have the best projection. I don't have any pictures with a five war by themselves. This year, it looks like no hitter is going to end up with a projection of seven war going into the season uh, because the two guys last year, Juan Soto and uh, Fernando Tatis Jr., there are reasons to like them a little less than at this point last year. Even Soto, who, I mean, he didn't have a great year by any stretch of the imagination. So mm-hmm. Otani is kind of projected to be the MVP, and I kind of hope that whatever happens, it's it's clear-cut enough so we don't have to have the same arguments this year <laughs> because those Judge versus Otani war MVP melees were extremely exhausting. Yeah, I mean- <laughs> 
some people look at that as a feature, I guess, that we actually have something to debate. And it's not just, oh, this guy has a way higher war, so he's the MVP. So, and in this case, they were both so great. I mean, it was only tiresome for me when people were trying to tear down the other one to boost the other up. And I was just kind of like, they were both amazing. I don't even care who wins the award because they just both had unbelievable seasons. So let's celebrate both of them. And something you just said sparked something in me. Are you at all surprised that pitchers, individual pitchers still command the contracts that they do, given that you said you don't have any individual starter, even with a, a five war projection? I mean, Obviously, like starters, as they pitch fewer innings, maybe they're more effective in some cases on a per inning basis. But if you can't count on someone for a lot of innings, I always just wonder, like, is this going to depress salaries? Because I think Rob Maines has found as much the fact that you still have to have as many innings pitched, but you distribute them over a greater number of pitchers. And so any individual pitcher is just not going to give you as much as as a top position player, right? Even in this day and age where we have more rest for position players too. So I, I keep kind of waiting for starting pitcher salaries to decline accordingly, but it, it doesn't really seem that they have. It's like the the bar, the limbo bar for innings pitch keeps going down and down, but the top pitchers still cash in. Like a lot of pitchers who were sort of mid rotation guys did really well this winter. What what what's kind of curious is as risky as pitchers are and the the concerns of about playing time is if you look at some of the if you if you named contracts that that did not work out well for the team, you actually name a lot more hitters than pitchers. Mm. I think mm-hmm. to an extent, the worry about pictures is largely priced in yeah. when you look at the salaries like like Verlander's various contracts. Those pretty much all worked out. Uh, King Felix, his contract worked out fine for the Mariners. Mm-hmm. Even Scherzer, if it of course. End as well. Yeah, it feels like these things are priced in better and priced in earlier, I think, because, you know, there's kind of a cultural already teams discounting pictures to a degree because you had a lot of when free agency was first the thing you had quite a few pretty awful contracts for teams for pictures and free agency like Wayne Garland's 10-year contract mm-hmm. and, and things like that I think that generally speaking when I look at picture projections versus hitter projections the hitter projections are actually coming close I mean the picture projections are actually coming a bit closer this offseason to the zips projections it's like the hitters are the ones who are exceeding it which is a curious thing hmm. yeah I guess because in a way pictures don't really age pictures break until you get right. towards like upper 30s mm-hmm. right i guess there is steven strasberg would be kind of the <laughs> get yeah well, steven yeah, that's we, not we hope working you pitch that again well. but <laughs> yeah right that's... but all you have to do is look at the zips projections for say like verlander and scherzer and see like oh you know provided that there's some expectation of health you know as long as their peripherals are good it doesn't mean they can't have an almost five even though not quite five right or yeah yeah and i guess the pitchers aren't the ones getting the 11 12 your contracts right. right so that's part of it too you can kind of count on Verlander and Scherzer well even despite their advanced age and injury histories it's not a bad bet for a few years or a couple years in Verlander's case well that was kind of a tangent just occurred to me another thing that occurred to me is that you have kind of tracked for some years whether teams were actually paying a, a premium for stars right for 
being able to concentrate a lot of war in one roster spot. I mean, I guess Otani would be the best example of that in that you're getting almost multiple players for one roster spot. But in the past, it was always a a running source of consternation, right? Like, why aren't teams paying more to concentrate those wins in that one roster spot? It's maybe more valuable to have one four-win player than two two two-win players, right? Because you only have to use one roster spot. But I think you've observed in recent years that that was not the case anymore, that that teams had sort of wised up to that. So I I guess that's probably even more the case now. I don't know if you've looked at that specifically. Yeah, I call it the Oakland A's paradox. Uh, (laughs) Only I do it because the A's in their bad years, they can find, you know, 25 or 26 one-win players. But the problem with having 26 one-win players is all of a sudden now you're a 73-win team. (laughs) Right. And if you find 100 one-win players, yeah, you have good depth, but it's not like you can utilize it on the team in any meaningful way. So Mm -hmm. I think that to an extent, we always kind of expected wins to be a little less linear in in this sense. Mm -hmm. But you can read back a lot of Fangraphs articles. Uh, Craig had one, Ben. I mean, you know, going back to the start of it, Generally speaking, it's still found out as at least sort of linear, just based on history. I think you're kind of running up into like team's ability to or willingness to absorb risk uh, to putting, you know, $60 million in a single player in a season, even Mm -hmm. if there's an argument that it seems logical. Now, Mm -hmm. in recent years, I'm not getting that it's like a curve or anything yet, but I've moved to a stepwise function simply because it does the evidence is strongly showing that teams are kind of discounting like win number one. Mm. So right now zips projects that first win is less valuable and, and the rest of the wins is as more valuable. So it's not really a pretty curve or anything. It's, it's more like a, a floor going onto an on-ramp. Okay. It's like a cigarette or something. Okay. (laughs) Well, you mentioned the Oakland A's. I guess that's a good way to segue to weak positions, although (laughs) they might have so many that we might not even talk about them. And we're talking mostly, I guess, about contending teams because you assume that non-contending teams are going to have some weak spots. So yeah, like if we said, okay, what are the weaknesses of the Reds? Oh, the players. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So where do you want to start? I don't know if you want to go position by position or team by team or just sorted by the least war or whatever you you're the one with the spreadsheet so i think the most interesting place to talk about where there's still holes are the teams that are on the cusp of contention where mm. they could be contenders but they might not be uh, uh-huh. because those, those are the teams that most because you know the, the mets at this point getting carlos correa is great but as weird as it is, they don't really need Carlos right. Correa to be serious contenders. And I, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's someday we'll we'll figure out what's wrong with Carlos Correa if it's the ankle or something else, or <laughs> if he ends up with a one year, eight year million dollar contract from the Pirates, uh, which would be an odd turn of events. But teams like the Angels and the Orioles, these teams do have scenarios in which they are contenders. It was something I warned about, especially with the Angels. Uh, when I ran Zips, is please don't just add the war up. <laughs> the, 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 don't. I mean, Carson warned you about karate chops for years for a reason. It wasn't just, you know, the the typical threat of violence you get when you're reading a statistical baseball piece. <laughs> you know how those uh, pieces always come with threats of violence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you have to. It it it, it makes it makes you know dealing with criticism a lot easier when you can say, well, you know what I could tell you, but you know something bad might happen. <laughs> hint, hint. 
Uh, but the Angels, they, their depth is not great, and they're a team that obviously they're. Uh, I, I talked with Meg about this when we were doing the article that they are. There is ownership concerns because that's kind of in flux right but they also seem to be a team that they sign their stars really well generally and are willing to spend but they do leave positions undone i would say i don't think the angels infield is great i would have loved that the orioles got a real starting picture mm. there's a little bit of risk at bias involved because i'm supposed to hate every team equally <laughs> but I'm, I'm from baltimore so i do like the orioles being a good team and I so wanted them to have Carlos Rodon. He mm. would have been such a nice fit. And they could have signed half of the free agents available and still had a payroll below the White Sox. The Orioles, that is a weakness that I'm, I'm, I'm really disappointed to see is going to be a weakness going into the season, short of a major trade, which I'm not sure is really going to happen at this point. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take us too far afield, but that sort of raises a question for me that maybe we want to circle back to later. But, you know, when you think about the Orioles, um, I don't disagree with you. I wish that they had sort of fortified what what is a fun and exciting but still incomplete team. They also strike me as a team that has at least one position in starting pitching where they might outperform just based on the fact that, like, I think that Grayson Rodriguez is projection is pretty impressive given that we don't know exactly when he's going to be coming up and that he hasn't seen big league time yet. But are there other clubs like that that strike you as, you know, if you had been able to put your thumb on the scale and sort of told Zips, no, no, this this guy might, you know, you might be discounting this one too, too much because he's a rookie and hasn't debuted yet. Are there other teams that strike you as having that potential to outperform? And I guess, are, are the Orioles even among those teams? I, I think that the Guardian starting pitching is probably better than Zip says. I mean, it likes Tristan McKenzie, and I liked him last year. I put him in the breakouts list. We won't talk about some of the players that were on that <laughs> breakouts list, uh, like a certain ex-Mariner picture yeah. on the Blue Jays, which did not work out at well. No. That's one of the one of the hardest things about running projections is you do have a tendency to want to put your, your thumb on the scale because you look at it and say, oh, that's that's not right. That looks really, really weird. And I think one of them actually is on the Orioles. Generally speaking, I think the pitching projections probably look about right. But Zips really liked Dean Kramer. Mm. Like, really, really liked Dean Kramer to the point where people were, like, asking about, like, why Zips likes it so likes him so much more than the Steamer. And I'm always like, well, you know, I don't run Steamers. So that's really hard to right. for me to ask. Because that, that's a very common question. Why does Zips like this player more? I'll tell you why Zips likes the player, but right. I mean, Jared and them aren't saying, hey, Dan, you want to look at all the code? Like, <laughs> sure. <laughs> and so I try not to get too much into who I like and who I don't. Because last year, I thought that the Tigers were better than Zips was saying. Zips was saying, you know, low eight, low 70s for the Tigers. And I thought, hey, you know, there's... They have some interesting pitching. They might get enough offense to to make an approach at 500. And Zips totally showed me because <laughs> the Tigers were not a pretty team at no. all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so what does the, I guess, do you have a projection for the, the Orioles uh, starting rotation or the weakest spots on the Angels? Are these like replacement level or just not far above replacement level? Well, generally speaking, the starting pitching for the Orioles and the projections is extremely weak. Nobody outside of Kramer really has like a a three win projection or is really even a threat to. Some people talk about their various Kyles uh, (laughs) that they have in the organization. Gibson, Bradish, there's another Bernovich. Is he still on the Orioles? 
I'm trying to remember. It's always I I, I hate rosters for fringe players this time of year because you're never quite sure who's where yet. <laughs> They just really needed another arm at the top of that rotation. And when you look at players like Wells and Bruce Zimmerman, I mean, they don't get really great projections. And I don't think Steamer disagrees all that much with it. Uh, Grayson Rodriguez did get, of course, an excellent projection. Yeah. So I'm hoping he works out. And John Means is going to return at some point. So there's some upside there. Uh, but the Orioles could have used a picture. I do think the Angels, I really think they should have been in the Carlos Correa sweepstakes. That was a team that that it makes sense for them to be as long as you're going to have Otani and Trout uh, and hopefully a he- healthy Anthony Rendon for it. Just that's just kind of disappointing. And they're not really a marginal contender. They're a really good team, but I would have liked the Braves to pick up another corner outfield because left fielders kind of you know Eddie Rosario, Marcelo Zuna. It's it's the rest of the team is pretty bananas, but left just doesn't seem that exciting for the Braves. Well, it's not too late to get in on the Carlos Correa sweepstakes, potentially. (laughs) So (laughs) there's still time. What about teams like the Rangers or uh, the White Sox? Like the the Rangers have upgraded a lot. The White Sox, not so much, but maybe have some stronger projections. I mean, they're sort of in a similar spot on the depth charts, even though they've kind of taken uh, different trajectories to this point. Oh, the Rangers, it's funny, you look at the Rangers infield and you're like, wow, this is this is a really good team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nathaniel Lowe or Lau, I always forget which one can't pronounce his last name. Uh, Marcus <laughs> Lee and Corey yeah. Seager. I hated that when, when they were all with the Rays. Yeah. Yes. Like, okay, Nathaniel Lowe, Brandon Lau. Now, Josh, is he a Lau or a Lowe or is he like Louie or Louvé? I, I, I hope he just says one of them, but. Low should be the default assumption. It's really Brandon Lau is the one just injecting yeah, uncertainty he's coming here up that, the works. that we never knew there should be. So we were very fortunate that Eric Gagne and Greg Gagne didn't play at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. You look at their infield and you think, well, that's a really good team. You look at their outfield and like, oh, that, that team's going to do well in the Pacific Coast League. <laughs> I mean, Zips might be underrating Adolis Garcia. I mean, he he had, does have better defensive numbers than Zips is projecting, but he's also, you know, not a young player. Uh, kind of he has kind of one really good skill offensively i mean it's a good skill to have in power but zips isn't excited about him left field it was you know some josh smith bubba thompson uh it's never a good sign when you're looking at team's depth chart and you're wondering if the player on the depth chart is that same guy you remember like brad miller is that is that the second baseman a while ago or is there just some other guy named brad miller Mm -hmm. it is the second baseman one but (laughs) I really think that they are kind of one of those marginal contenders because they're strong in a lot of places. They're they're pitching, of course, with for the healthy Jacob Degrom looks terrific. All of a sudden, you have no Degrom, Gray, Perez, Avaldi, Heaney. I mean, that's that's a pretty good rotation. I mean, Dane Dunning is kind of the uh, a fallback position. Jacob Rizzi is kind of a a plan B, and that that that's a good rotation if things work out. But I would have liked to see that team go after, say, Brandon Nimmo. He would have been a lot of fun to have in Texas because you don't necessarily have to play him in center field. They can play Tavares if he works out. Uh, they don't need Nimmo there. But I, I think that remains a, a need for the Rangers. And I'm not sure if they're really going to be able to address that before the season. Among some of the other teams that either were in the playoffs last year or sort of flirted with contention right to the end, are there others that strike you as having like obvious spots of vulnerability. I'm always more worried about the Astros catcher situation than the Astros are. <laughs> I, I mean, they, they love Martin Maldonado and he works really well with pictures and, and, and all that good stuff. 
But then you look at him batting and you think, oh, I wish they had a better catcher than that. I don't think they agree with that by any stretch of the imagination. I'd also I'd also have liked the Padres to be a little more aggressive at DH. I like I mean, Matt Carpenter was a lot of fun last year, but I'm not sure that the Padres necessarily want to roll the dice with that. And I think you necessarily don't want to just commit to Tatis as the DH. I think there's a lot of sorting out there. I think they could have used another outfielder better than Adam Engel on the roster. But it's hard to be too greedy with the Padres because it's not like they haven't done a lot in the last couple of years. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that stood out to me just looking at some projections, like a lot of teams have weak DH projections, but maybe that's just a a factor of just sort of the way that teams use the DH spot these days. It's just not a lot of dedicated DHs, everyday DHs. It's just sort of a a rotating catch-all kind of position where people get partial days off or you just cycle people through there with a a few exceptions, like just looking at the, the DH projections. I mean, it's also just it's hard to accumulate a lot of war just as a DH with the positional penalty unless you're raking like Jordan Alvarez or something. So that's probably part of it too. But I I guess they're just, and maybe it's still just kind of a hangover effect of uh, pitchers hitting and NL teams still kind of uh, figuring out (laughs) how a universal DH world works. But there are a lot of teams where you kind of look like, is that that's a DH, like that's your <laughs> your designated hitter. Is that guy going to hit? But I guess it's usually not just one guy. Yeah, the problem you run into is you don't really get a lot of DH prospects because right. most prospects you want to be playing a position because that's going to be where they're most most valuable. And as you say, uh, it is kind of new and, and NL teams are still kind of integrating their rosters into it. I think there's an argument to be made that because of the sudden change that first base DH types might be slightly underrated kind of in a real world sense right now from the positional adjustments. I mean, we could do probably a whole episode on positional adjustments. Yeah. I actually use a lot less of a penalty. Well, not a lot less, but I use less of a penalty for DH and zips than the generalized one. I mean, there have been a lot of fights on on Twitter and, and sabermetric circles between like Tom Tango and Jeff Zimmerman got in it last year and and just generally people fighting about DH penalties. It's a, it's a very nerdy <laughs> world when that's what they fight. It's like you go on Twitter and most people are fighting about politics and you look at baseball world. How dare you give the DH a larger penalty than first baseman in positional adjustments? I, I do think that the evidence, at least as far as I have been able to put together, strongly suggests that sitting on the bench and coming in and hitting is kind of difficult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know David Ortiz talked about that a few times, that it was a hard thing. That, that is, It took him a while to get used to as a young player sitting there and just coming into the game, even if you're not a good defensive player. And I think some of that we see also in, in pinch hitting because everybody hits pretty awfully as a pinch hitter the the pinch hitter penalty is massive mm-hmm. but if we were rating pinch hitters i don't think we would necessarily say well they have no defensive value but no they have the value of they had to you know sitting on their butt for eight innings mm-hmm. so i mean there there are a lot of things we could talk about with dhs i i do think that it's almost an opportunity for teams because if you really do have someone who's good as a dh and you're not having to use it kind of as the rest day half spot like the baseball equivalent of like casual friday 
<laughs> right. <laughs> that that you can get a pretty good gain from having a, a terrific hitter at DH who is comfortable with the spot and rakes. Mm-hmm. Wanted to ask you about the Dodgers because of they're either now neck and neck with the Padres or a bit behind the Padres projections wise. And they usually have so much depth in redundancy and also star power. I don't know if they have positions now where they project to be below average, but there's got to be somewhere they're quite close at least, right? So yeah, what below do you have average this, for the yeah. Dodgers. Uh, <laughs> I mean, right. you looked at the at the Zips projections, especially the little graphic that that we put together, and you say, oh, there are some places that don't look great. Center field, Zips using the depth chart playing time. Zips has Trace Thompson and 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 uh, James Outman as a below average combination in center by a hair and uh, Outman and Miguel Vargas is 1.2 war in left field. And, you know, most teams do have some kind of hole, but it's almost unusual for the Dodgers to enter a season with this kind of hole. I, I wrote more about it, but the thing about the Dodgers this year and that outfield outside of Mookie Betts, of course, is it kind of feels like their plan B outfield, the one you might see, in June when someone's injured rather than the, the, the crowd they go into the, the season with. It's interesting kind of the, the cap situation they find themselves in, and it is a cap, mm-hmm. soft cap. But mm-hmm. the Trevor Bauer return, which I don't think anyone was really hopeful for, and I don't think the Dodgers were, has kind of put them in an odd position since they want to reboot their penalties and they literally have no room. I think it's, what, less than a million? Have any have either of you checked yeah. that recently? It's... Mm-hmm. It's really like, oh, we can't even get like a utility infielder right. without giving up a contract. So the Dodgers, I mean, I, they're still a very good team. And you'd be crazy to say, oh, this team's going to go 85 from 77. But <laughs> I think they're weaker now projected than in any recent offseason I can remember. Mm-hmm. Wanted to ask about the Mariners, another West Coast team, because uh, they're another team that's uh, they got over the hump, so you can't say they're on the cusp, but they're not necessarily assured of being back in the playoffs. I don't think any Mariners fan takes making the playoffs for granted <laughs> after one year, and they just signed A.J. Pollock, but they have not been super active in free agency. So what is uh, shaping up as their potential weak point or their weak points or places where perhaps they could have spent I'm not super crazy about their DH position. I'm not really excited about Pollock. And it does seem to be like one of the teams that it's just going to be the the part-time old outfielder resting up catchers and outfielders. So I'm not, I'm not crazy about the DH position. I, I don't think it's a, a particular highlight of the team. I think one of the things that makes the, the Mariners difficult to upgrade is they're really solid kind of everywhere. Right. And you, you look at like, really the entire infield to upgrade any of them you kind of need like a four or five win player and there are only a few of them available in free agency and it it takes a lot you have to trade a lot of value to pick up those types in the trade market so i don't think that they're like that much better than last year but i think they were also just because of the contours of the roster we're a really hard team to upgrade this this winter Yeah, I meant to ask when you mentioned center field for the Dodgers as a potential weak point. I guess that's a 
potential weak point for a lot of teams because we're kind of at a low ebb for center field offense. We've mentioned this before. I think Rob Means just wrote about this at BP. Center fielders had a 688 OPS collectively in 2022, which was bad even by 2022 offensive standards. And you still have some stars there. I mean, that was with Aaron Judge playing a good deal center. And of course, with Julio, speaking of the Mariners, and Michael Harris and Mike Trout. I don't know how much longer Mike Trout will be a regular center fielder, but he's still out there. But take away those guys, and I think it's like a 662 OPS, Rob noted, which would be worse than even catchers hit collectively. So I don't know if it means anything. It might just be one of those cyclical things where some positions are strong sometimes and some positions are weak sometimes. But just there's some star power at those positions, but only a very few. And beyond that, there's just it's not a lot like you could probably point to a lot of teams and say center field looks a little iffy at least offensively like the Astros too for that matter I mean they just won a World Series having iffy offense and production in general from center field so it didn't stop them but but that is kind of a feature of a lot of teams it feels like it changed fairly quickly I would go back a few years and it seemed there were a few years if I'm not mistaken where uh center fielders actually out hit corner outfielders as a group now, I could be lying about that, uh, but that's just my 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 memory is faulty as I as I grow older and I decline into senescence. But uh, it feels like it changed fairly quickly. Uh, and I I guess the loss of, of Bellinger seems to be a big part of that, because you look at the like the 2019 NL MVP race. Yeah. And you, and you look at where they are now, because no one's going to even try to play Christian Yelich in, in center anymore. Yeah. Bellinger is basically a gloved defensive center fielder. That's his value now. It's I don't think anyone kind of expected that a few years ago. Oh, he's going to be poor man's Kevin Kiermaier in a few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just also looking because we talked about the Angels and on the depth charts, at least this probably doesn't quite mirror your projections exactly. But the Angels also have the worst bullpen projection. And they had one of the worst bullpens in 2022. Now, I don't put that much stock into bullpen projections. I mean, there's like less than a four win range between the best projected bullpen and the worst projected bullpen. And ultimately, who knows how that will all shake out. But there are some teams like the Angels and the Diamondbacks are are down at the bottom there. And those are two teams that are maybe in sort of similar positions, hoping to sneakily contend for wild cards and, and the Cubs not far above them so you have the angels the diamondbacks you have then the tigers cubs pirates rockies a's like bad teams but also the angels the diamondbacks the rangers are down there so i don't know how seriously you you take a bullpen projection or how much you actually like bullpens are hard yeah because you also don't necessarily know what the mix is going to come out as yeah like if you look at our depth charts you see like you know we have like 15 guys for each team and it's always hard to tell because they're so volatile. I mean, there's there's generally broad agreement between Steamer and Zips in projections because they are going to tend to come together because both of these projection systems have been around for a long time. So there's a lot of disagreement between Steamer and Zips on a few things. And Zips actually kind of likes a little bit the Angels bullpen, uh, but it does not see it as a team strength. And I think that, generally speaking, the Angels probably had bigger needs than the bullpen, even if it wasn't great last year. I mean, you look at Steber, he has pretty much just uh, Estevez and uh, Kihada above replacement level, while Zips is, is, is more optimistic about it, even though it does have them kind of in the middle of the pack. But it likes 
pictures like Aaron Loop. So you're going to have some disagreement there, and it's probably not going to be the thing that separates the good teams from the bad teams. Generally speaking, even though bullpens are the things that fans seem to think are the most important because <laughs> there's like five there's five teams whose fans think their bullpen is the greatest ever and 25 teams who think that their team would be in the playoffs if not for their bullpen <laughs> yeah as we've talked about like having a bad bullpen can really make for a bad spectator experience yeah you know <laughs> it's like especially yeah if you're if you're a bad team and you just can never hold a lead and you feel like you can never make a comeback because your bullpen's gonna cough up runs or any game that you lose because your bullpen blew it that's gonna happen sometimes inevitably but it it hurts worse <laughs> it stings more i think so when you have a team that is uh good in every other respect but you constantly Constantly feel like your bullpen is sabotaging you. It stinks. <laughs> so you can't always predict which teams those will be, of course. And, and then you get to October and suddenly bullpens that you thought were unremarkable will be nails for a month. So who knows? But it is very frustrating when you're in the midst of uh, your bullpen just killing you day after day. And uh, some of the uh, the basic closer stats that still exist tend to kind of push people in that direction because they see blown saves and they say well if we turn some of these 25 blown saves into wins we we'd, we'd have a great team and it's 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 hard to really tell people what's wrong with that in like five words mm-hmm. then you have to explain oh well you know that you know that you can blow a save without having a realistic way of getting a save because blown holds are saves too and lots of blown saves turn into wins and you can blow more than one save in a game and it's sometimes hard to get that across. Mm-hmm. I want to ask about the, the Brewers because they actually have one of the highest team war projections uh, <laughs> on the Fangraphs depth charts, which which might sort of surprise people. I think uh, the thing about them, I mean, they're not one of the highest, but they're kind of middle of the pack, like they're right around the Phillies or the Rangers, you know, teams that have uh, made more of a stir this offseason. But the thing with the Brewers, and I guess it's kind of always the thing with the Brewers, is that they don't have star power, right? I mean, they keep hoping that Christian Yelich will be a star again, but in the absence of that, like all of their projected positions and positional totals, like it's, you know, one something, two something, maybe three something war. And I guess that kind of goes along with what you were saying about teams that don't have necessarily a huge gaping hole like the Mariners. And so you'd like a little bit more production out of some of those positions, but it's also tougher to to target one where you could make a massive upgrade. So the Brewers, they've done a good job, I think, historically of just accumulating depth and not having a whole lot of uh, sub-replacement level positions, but just not a lot at the top end. I mean, beyond the rotation, I guess, which is perennially a strength for them. Yeah, it's something I, I, I did talk about when I ran the Brewers projections there. They're solid everywhere, but especially on the hitting side, they're not really exciting anywhere. Yeah. They could have, you know, a top, they could be fifth or sixth in the league and run scored uh, with uh, Louis Sirius as their best offensive player, maybe. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but it's not really that far off. Uh, the pitching is pretty exciting. Uh, I'm not really sure uh, if they're going to be able to keep it together much longer simply because of free agency. Uh, and their probable lack of interest in spending, you know, $200 million to keep Corbin Burns or Brendan Woodruff. It's one of those things where you said I would have liked them to do more, but realistically, it probably wasn't going to happen because that is a team that could have gone after Nimmo. 
I mean, Aaron Judge in, in Milwaukee would have been a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. I, I don't know if any Brewers yeah. fans actually allowed themselves to to contemplate that possibility. <laughs> but, no, I but. mean, I've been, I've been trying to contemplate and make happen Carlos Correa to the Orioles. Mm-hmm. No, it's not going to happen because I, I just sit here and I think of Gunnar Henderson at second, maybe, and Correa at short and Mullins in center and Adley Rutschman behind the plate. And I'm like, and I'm just, and I'm just daydreaming and, 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 <laughs> and just thinking to myself, oh, that would be special. And I could, I could die happy. Were there any teams? I know that we still have a good number of them to do, but of those that have run, were there any whose either collective strength or weakness kind of surprised you? The Diamondbacks. Zips, mm. Zips loves the Diamondbacks young pitching. Basically, one of the hardest things about minor leaguers right now is that there's such a difference in the offense between the minors and the majors right now. Mm. And I think I think a lot of fans might not have noticed it, but while offense disappeared in in the majors it's exploded in recent years in in the minors the pacific coast league was up near six runs a game and that was like their biggest since i think like 81 or 82 or somewhere around there when it was a notorious league for offense so the diamondbacks have had a lot of pitching prospects that have survived in that kind of offensive environment uh and since there's such a difference between the Pacific Coast League and the International League and the majors in offense, you get kind of a weird thing where a lot of times Zips at least has the translation for a picture as a lower ERA than they had in the minors, which doesn't happen that often. You mostly saw that like when when the Brewers had a triple A team in Colorado Springs and there was kind of that difference between the mile high air and Milwaukee. So Zips likes their starting pitching a lot and and sees them kind of as a marginal contender right now a team that is somewhere like in that 82 to 85 win range Mm -hmm. one other team i wanted to ask about is the phillies who added trey turner this offseason and so they obviously have a great projection there but in the absence of Bryce Harper for probably at least half the season and in the outfield for who knows how long, maybe most of the season, how does the outfield look? I mean, what does Zips think about Brendan Marsh, who people hold out hope for that we will see more from him? But you have that and then you're still projecting, you know, Castellanos and, and Schwerber out there playing the corners as long as Harper is unable to play outfield. So what does that do to the overall productivity of that outfield? Well, Zips is not on team Brandon Marsh at all mm. and mm. was not a fan of the Brandon Marsh trade. Mm. Zips is that, that, that swap of Marsh for Logan O'Hoppy. Oh, I love saying mm-hmm. uh, it makes me think of a pale ale. I think, oh, hoppy, mm, pale <laughs> <Yeah>. ale, <laughs> IPA. I think that's an outfit with some problems. Luckily, I think Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos are poor enough defensive players that you're not going to get in a weird situation where they say, hey, do you think one of them can play center field? <laughs> no. It would be amusing. <laughs> Maybe not for Phillies fans. (laughs) Not for Phillies fans, but as kind of like for the science and the comedy, I would have loved to see at some point the Schwerber Castellanos Harper outfield just to see what happens. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Oh, and what about White Sox second base? Oh, I I don't know if I want to talk about that. That's that's, (laughs) I the White Sox are a very frustrating team in a lot of ways. 
Yeah. Because there's there's a lot to like about them as they rebuild and that there's not a lot to like about how they've been run kind of in like the year and a half or two years that they've been serious contenders. I would have trouble telling, you know, Remy Gonzalez, Gilbert Sanchez, Lennon Sosa, uh, Larry Garcia, who's still around for some reason. I'd have trouble telling them all apart as players. Mm hmm. It's like the most disappointing uh, chimera in in like Greek mythology. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, and also the other socks, the red ones, they seem to have some weak spots too. We've we've talked about their perplexing roster and general strategy, but there seem to be some positions there. I guess uh, some outfield positions. DH elsewhere where it, it's not looking super strong and for that matter, starting pitching, right? Yeah, I, you look at their starting pitch and you say, okay, if everyone's healthy, maybe, but right now we have in their projected rotation Chris Sale, who does not have a great injury history recently, James Paxton, who has an injury history so significant that you're always kind of wondering, oh, right, he's still in the league, isn't he? <laughs> uh, which isn't a great thing when you're pending someone in for your third or fourth starter. Uh, I, I do like Kluber, and I mean, Nick Pavetta will eat innings, but it's not an exciting rotation. I am still shocked that they actually uh, got Devers for a, a, a long-term deal. I did not think that they were going to do that in the end. Mm-hmm. So last thing, maybe only tangentially related to, to baseball, since you do mess around a lot on Twitter with various <laughs> AIs and just in general, but also with uh, <laughs> with chatbots and with AI art, et cetera, some things, you know, <laughs> you've had your neural networks and you have it generate various amusing things. But I wonder, because, you know, we've gone through our phase where we had our little effectively wild scripts from chat GPT and sort of uh, ponder whether this is just fun or whether this is a sign of the end times. And I wonder where you stand on that. I feel fortunate from a, a baseball perspective because I was just reading Joe Posnanski. He's a big chess fan and he was writing about how chess bots have basically solve chess you know and we're a long way from like gary kasparov versus deep blue like it's it's not close anymore you know and so now any bot any sophisticated bot can beat the best players in the world probably let alone normal players and you almost feel like chess has been optimized sort of like there's always a best move you could make there's always a better move you you could have made you don't feel like you're discovering anything new necessarily it's like it's sort of a solved science to some extent which doesn't mean it can't still be fun but still and you know you've played all kinds of other games like that whether it's hearthstone or you know other games maybe that strategy games that can be optimized or, or can be solved in a way that baseball can't quite right you know we figured out some things about baseball but it, it can't be solved in quite the same way and it's not players against a computer it's players against other humans at least for now so i wonder whether you fear for our livelihoods in our future <laughs> or whether you're not that concerned about the apocalyptic dystopian scenarios and you're just enjoying yourself oh i i'm enjoying myself i I kind of figure that the robots take over. I'll kind of be the ally and, and kind of turn in the <laughs> turn in the, the the straggling humans for a preferred place as a as you know the robot human civil war collaborator. Because oh, no, I'm Dan. sorry. Wow. I'm sorry. I'm a I'm like I'm like a 
the blue pill guy. I'm, I'm Joe Pantoliano in, in The Matrix. I, I want the steak. I don't care if it's real. <laughs> no, that's terrible, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, I I enjoy AI stuff a lot. I I probably do too much, and I sign the word like, oh, I I I hope I need to kind of tell Meg that I'm actually running Zips right now, and I'm not just doing this all day. Right. I mean, how far are we from an AI just uh, developing its own projection system, and we can just ask ChatGPT what the weakest projected positions on the rosters are, and they'll put you out of business? <laughs> I mean, Zips kind of is. Yeah. I mean, there are essentially predictive algorithms in the same kind of concept as it. Uh, I've actually asked you know ChatGPT for zips projections for fun and ask how zips works and i i enjoy the answers i get from zips or from <laughs> from chat gpt or uh, i like to use Inferkit, which is another implementation i've been using that for a couple years i kind of have some of that hipster like disdain i'm like for the for the johnny come newlies for ai it's like you know i was i was posting weird stuff from ai like like three years ago <laughs> I mean, yeah. I've I've posted like cocktails that I generated for each Fangraph staff. I once generated a signature weapon for each member of the Fangraph staff, which I which I kind of should try to find while I was doing this. I didn't know that would come up because I actually have a a huge giant folder of neural network stuff. <laughs> People are gonna need them if you're here to yeah, turn I'm, turncoat. Yeah, well, you could tell the robot overlords that that you were on board early before everyone else got on board. But so you're not afraid, or at least no. you're not afraid because uh, you're going to be on the robot side. <laughs> but no, like, also, like I have it open now, and I found uh, the Meg Rally cocktail uh, that I, I generated. Oh no, terrible! It's a one and a half ounces of Cayman Island rum, half an ounce <laughs> of Bicherovka Kachasha. I can never pronounce that. Half an ounce of Cherry Hearing and Orange Twist. Add all ingredients in the shaker, shake and strain into highball. Not a Delicious. Big rum, I'm not a big rum gal, so I don't is know. It the, is it the sweetness? Yeah, yeah, tends <laughs> to be. And some of that is likely what it is often mixed with, but yeah, it tends to be a little sweet for me. So yeah. the AI's got to do some work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did find the signature weapons for Fangraph staff. Oh, boy. I, I, didn't give, I didn't give you a weapon, though, Ben. Oh, I'm sorry. well, I'm not on the staff, uh, technically. Uh, Dave, so. Dave Appleman gets a poison-tipped umbrella. <laughs> seems appropriate. Meg, Meg gets a, a steel butterfly dagger. Okay. Jay, hmm. Jay gets a cast iron skillet. <laughs> I can see that happening. Ben yeah. Clemens gets, I don't know how this works, a manual typewriter with machete. Oh. Wow. Some of them are a little weird. Eric yeah. gets a frisbee with attached taser wire. I don't know oh. what that means. And Yikes. Jason Martinez gets a power drill with spike wrapped in dynamite. <laughs> Creative. Well, uh, I've I've wondered just because uh, we've run through scripts that some of our listeners have generated of effectively wild conversations, and they don't sound like us, but they sound vaguely like things <laughs> that we could talk about. Yeah. And I've just kind of been curious about what it's even drawing from for a podcast, right? Like we don't have transcripts available online that it could comb through. I guess we have podcast it can descriptions. Extrapolate. It can extrapolate we have a, very well, though. A wiki. Yeah, because they literally went through, you know, billions of web pages and stuff. And I've done some things by request for people because I've through experience, I've gotten kind of the hang of manipulating GPT-3 to give me things I want. Like a while ago, I gave uh, Mike Farron and Jim Duquette on uh, MLB Radio Network a list of possible episode titles from Neural Network <laughs> like Mike Farron and Jim Duquette start their own paranormal investigation TV show or. Mike Farron and Jim Duquette study Wade Boggs' battle socks. I didn't know he had battle socks, but the, the neural network thinks he did. Hmm. 
Well, I hope you'll put in a word for us when you're, you know, <laughs> the lackey to the, <laughs> the robot overseers. Please just, uh, you know, say something nice just so they don't come down on us too hard. But you can uh, follow Dan's ongoing Zips Projection team-by-team series. And, of course, uh, as the season gets closer, I'm sure you will regenerate projections for teams and players. And we're always paying close attention to those. And I guess the off-season, at least the off-season activity, ended earlier than usual. Uh, do you have a theory about that, by the way, before we let you go? Just uh, why it happened so quickly? Is it just that... There was a lot of money in the market this year. It was a semi-normal off-season again, post-peak pandemic, post-lockout, etc. Or do you think that this will be closer to the new normal than the pre-pandemic off-seasons when everything was extremely slow and we lamented the death of free agency? I don't want to call this a trend. I'm sure it helped that there's a little more money in simply because probably, you know, leftover spending from last year that never really came together and the little boost from the MLBAM sale of the rest of their share in that. I, I do think that it's generally because there was more money available. There was a moving up of some of these of the uh, the threshold for luxury tax. So teams felt a little more comfortable with doing that. I hope that it's more like this in future off seasons, uh, but I don't really want to get my hopes up yet because the the luxury tax threshold does not move up all that quickly past the initial bump up. Right. Okay. Well, you can read Dan at Fangrass and you can find him and his Gronk eating laundry pods, AI generated <laughs> images on Twitter at D Zimborski, which of course is just like it sounds. S-Z-Y-M-B-O-R-S-K-I. Thanks, Dan. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right, before we finish up here, I want to send our best wishes to White Sox reliever Liam Hendricks, who was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and started treatment this week. Everyone loves Liam Hendricks. Why wouldn't you? Not only is he one of the, oh, handful of best relievers in baseball, but he's extremely Australian. He can be quite profane. He does not warn Dylan before he does a swear. He's also thoughtful and a good quote and philanthropic and a popular teammate. So there's been an outpouring of affection and well wishes for Hendricks. We hope that we see him playing baseball again sometime soon because that would mean he's healthy. After we recorded and spoke to Dan about the Angels, they signed Brett Phillips. I don't know how much better that makes them or how much it addresses their replacement level problems, but I'm imagining Brett Phillips palling around with Shohei Otani, and I'm enjoying that prospect already. Shohei pulling a prank and making Brett Phillips do his honking goose laugh? Sign me up. Also, speaking of Matt Veerling and CarShield, there was a Reddit post on the baseball subreddit on Monday where someone made an all-CarShield team, the best players at each position who have appeared in a regional CarShield commercial. Matt Veerling did not crack the lineup. I don't know if this is because the user wasn't aware that Matt Veerling is a CarShield sponsor or because he just didn't merit a starting spot, but I will link to that on the show page for anyone who's interested. A few other follow-ups. Got a bunch of responses to our pedantic conversation last time about why we use dashes instead of slashes to represent a hitter's hits and at-bats. One Patreon supporter text proposed that it could be that the numbers are usually smaller and might get confused with normal fractions in print, as in one-third or one-quarter or two-fifths, whereas football or basketball shooting or passing attempts regularly go into the double digits and the slash can help save space. 
We also got an email from another listener named Ben who said, I think most modern mathematicians wouldn't agree that batting lines are fractions. Of course, there's a relationship, the batting average calculation more or less, but it's not identical. An easy way to see the why is to think about one for one, three for three, and six for six as fractions. They're equal, but they're very different batting lines. Another way to say the same thing is that if someone tells you Shohei Otani batted 500 for the day, that's not enough to know whether he went one for two or two for four. There's a whole branch of mathematics, category theory, devoted to being pedantic about this sort of thing. I don't know how many listeners will find this as fascinating as I do, but hopefully it at least confuses the issue enough to let us all relax about dashes slash slashes, not dashes dash slashes. The only sure way to fight pedantry is with even more pedantry. Thank you, Ben. We also discussed the best ball to substitute for a baseball, and I think the most popular listener suggestion was a lacrosse ball. Listener Alex in Cleveland said a lacrosse ball would be the most fun, similar in size, so gloves wouldn't have to change. I've hit lacrosse balls with a baseball bat. They travel for a mile. Not exaggerating, I've hit a lacrosse ball coming in at batting practice speed that has traveled 600 or 700 feet, and I was an average high school player. It was like giving 1995 Frank Thomas a drop five aluminum bat. There could be no H-back gloves as it would blow through the webbing with 160 miles per hour exit velocity. This should be a part of All-Star Weekend. That is the problem, one of the problems with other balls. Some of them would be very hard and dangerous to field. On the episode, we settled on tennis balls and tennis rackets so that fielders would maybe have rackets or rackets and gloves. And this actually has been done. There is tennis baseball. There are some videos online of tennis baseball. It looks fun. I will link to an example if you're interested in checking it out. We also answered a question about minor leaguers requesting a trade and how bad you could be in a short span of games. Miguel Andujar came up because he managed to be a winner more below replacement level in a mere 12 games. And listener Eric wrote in to say, I'm probably not the first to alert you to this, but Miguel Andujar did indeed request a trade after being demoted to the minors in 2022. Still think the Yankees should have gotten Cabrian Hayes or Brian Reynolds from the Pirates for him, but what can you do? As we noted, if you're in the minors, you don't have a ton of leverage in your trade demand. And Duhar evidently had been seeking a trade since the end of the 2021 season. And he didn't get traded, but he did get selected off waivers by the Pirates late in September and got to play in nine games for them. So he got out eventually. Finally, I did a stat blast about the late Nate Colbert and his ownership of the all-time Padres home run record. I mentioned that he had equaled Stan Musial's record for five homers in a doubleheader. But listener Jake pointed out that Colbert was actually there for Musial's five homer feat. He was a St. Louis native and was originally signed by the Cardinals and rooted for the Cardinals. So he saw Musial hit those five homers before, years later, doing the same himself. Thank you for all the responses to what we discussed. It's nice to know that people are paying attention and care enough to write in and let us know about little things like this that help enhance our discussion or fill us in on things that we missed. You can also support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, get themselves access to some perks, and help us stay ad-free. Jeremy Erdley, Russell Spaulding, Evan Watson, Sam Perrin, and Hans Randall. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Patreon Discord group for supporters only, close to 950 members now. It's a great growing community. Be a part of it. You also get access to monthly bonus episodes of the show, or at least a show hosted by me and Meg. And you can get discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships and playoff live streams and much more. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can contact me and Meg through the Patreon site. If not, you can still email us at podcast at fangraphs.com. 
And of course, you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. You can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. I got too far from my raise and I forgot where I come from In the line between right and wrong was so fine Well, I thought that Howie loved me, but she beat me like a drum My day will come if it takes a lifetime I, Yeah, I, the, oh, oh, sorry. sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, no you, you go. go ahead. No, you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know.